Please open up your Bibles with me to Acts 13, 1 through 3. If you're able, please stand. Again, I'll be reading from Acts 13, 1 through 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Holy Trinity Chicago, downtown congregation, and all who are gathered here with us today. I'm John Dennis, senior pastor of Holy Trinity Church, and uh, I'm so excited that there's just two weeks till Easter and that we will be able, after a full year, 12 months, of not being able to meet together, we'll be able to meet together in person. Really, really excited about that, and I'm also excited that yesterday was the first day of spring. Well, last week we spoke a bit about getting connected to God's power, to the power source, and we spoke of the importance of prayer and the ministry of the Word. And uh, today we're going to look at what might be called the prayer meeting that changed the world. And the title of my sermon for today is, What Might God Do? The Prayer Meeting That Changed the World. H.B. Charles, who is a amazing preacher today, some call him a modern-day Charles Spurgeon, spoke on our men's retreat a number of years ago, and everybody got uh, a book called It Happens After Prayer. And I just want to read to you a very quick sentence, a couple sentences here. He says, let me say that again, speaking of prayer. Prayer is a privilege. It's not a burdensome duty. It's a wonderful privilege. Even though scripture commands us to pray, we should not view prayer as something we have to do. We should view it as something we get to do. It's a privilege to have an audience before the creator and the sustainer of the universe. The blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus has given us access to the throne of God. Why should I pray, you ask? Answer, prayer works. More accurately, God works when we pray. When we work, we work. But when we pray, God works. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the arm of omnipotence. Brothers and sisters, what might God do? I'm going to ask you to turn with me to prayer now and ask that God would have his blessing on this word as we look at Acts chapter 13. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we sometimes don't believe what H.B. Charles has said, that it is a wonderful privilege to pray. We find it burdensome. But today, Lord, I pray that you would show us how powerful the prayer was that this group prayed when they were together and how that prayer has had a ripple effect that has affected the whole world. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In 1857, on July 1st, in the city of New York, a businessman woke up and began to read his Bible, and he wrote down in his journal a couple scriptures, Be not weary in doing good, 2 Thessalonians 3.13, 
And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. And then he tells in his journal how he began walking around the city on that day. The idea came to his mind of having a prayer meeting from 12 to 1 o'clock that could be a beneficial meeting for business leaders. And so this man went on noonday on that day of the week and prayed for half an hour by himself. A week later, he came back on Wednesday, September 30th. There were 20 people present in his prayer meeting. And he says that he prayed that the Lord would incline many to come to the place of prayer. The next week, there were 30 to 40, and so on it goes in this book called The Power of Prayer, The New York Revival of 1858. God did something absolutely extraordinary, something that began in the room of prayer, in the closet of prayer, began to spread through the streets of New York so that people were flocking to pray to God at the noon hour, and then it began to jump to other cities, this prayer movement, to Philadelphia, to Chicago, and then even globally to London and to Cambridge and to all over the world. A revival broke out that has impacted the whole world. And I say that because today our text speaks of a prayer meeting, the ripple effect of which we have felt in our own lives. If you want to put it in the negative, if the people of God in this room had not gathered these five leaders to pray, then God would have used some other way, but he chose a gathering of prayer to launch his global mission. And that's all I really want to communicate to you today. I want to show you why God would use this prayer meeting to change the world. I want to show you who was there, and then I want to show you what happened as a result of it. So we're going to look today at what's, what's what I'm calling the prayer meeting that changed the world, and why God used it, who he used, and then how it was used. So keep your Bibles open to Acts 13 and follow along with me. First of all, I want to show you why God used this prayer meeting to change the world. Take a look at the text at Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. And by the way, this is one of my favorite texts in the whole Bible, and God's used it in my life many times, so I'm excited to preach it. But here's what it says. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and he names five people, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. The first point I want to make is very simply this, that God wanted a prayer meeting to be the place where he launches his global mission. God's heart has always been for the nations, all the way back to Genesis 12. When God speaks to Abraham, he tells him that he is to be a blessing to all peoples, to all families of the earth. The Great Commission is to go to the whole world. Here's what Spurgeon says in one of my favorite quotes from him. He says, the Christian church was designed from the first to be aggressive. 
It was not intended to remain stationary at any period, but to advance onward, listen, until its boundaries became commensurate with those of the world. And that's what God is doing in this prayer meeting. It was to spread from Jerusalem to all Judea and Judea to Samaria and from Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. Listen, listen to this. It was not intended to radiate from one central point only, but to form numerous centers from which its influence might spread to the surrounding parts. So why would God use a prayer meeting to launch a global mission? Because his heart is for the whole world and for the nations, but also because he delights in using prayer. God honors prayer. Listen to what E.M. Bounds, that great Methodist preacher and man of prayer, said once. What the church needs today is not more machinery or, or better, not new organizations or novel methods, but men and women whom the Holy Ghost can use. Men and women of prayer. Men and women mighty in prayer. The Holy, the Holy Ghost does not flow, he says, through methods, but through men and through women. He does not come on machinery, but upon men and women. He does not anoint plans, but he anoints men and women, men and women of prayer. God wants the whole world to know. Acts 1.8, and you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon me, you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Friends, the gospel movement doesn't come out of Jerusalem, actually. God uses this place called Antioch to unleash his gospel in the furnace room of prayer is where he launches it. You know, in olden days, churches would have their Wednesday night prayer meeting and I've been to a few of those and they become a little bit sleepy. But what happened in the New Testament wasn't that there was only one single time of prayer, say on a Wednesday night. They lived and breathed in prayer. Prayer was their life. Prayer was their breath. Wherever they would go, they would be praying. If they were in a home, they would pray. So for us, our community groups, which are scattered in homes all across the city, they aren't specifically prayer meetings, but they are a place where the breath of prayer needs to go out. So the very first thing I want you to see is that God uses this prayer meeting to affect the whole world. It comes really all the way to us. Friends, let's be a praying church. As H.B. Charles has said, it happens after prayer. If you look at the uh, first verse again, says, now there were in the church at Antioch, and it names the five people. We get to see who was there. And I'm just going to focus on verse one for a moment. Who was in this prayer meeting? And where was the prayer meeting itself in the 1939 film, The Wizard of Oz? Dorothy has one phrase that has come down through the generations, which is, Toto, I've got a feeling we are not in Kansas anymore. And that is part of what Luke, the author of this volume, is saying, is that this isn't the church in Jerusalem. This isn't the church that was so Jewish in its nature. This is the Gentile church breaking away and beginning to explode with God's power. Uh, one scholar, Konzelman, says this city appears 
as the historical center for the expansion of Christianity into the Gentile territory or into the great nations. What happens is that God chooses five diverse leaders from this newly formed global church or global city church and thrusts some of them out. Antioch is technically known as Antioch on the Orontes. It's uh, also sometimes known as Syrian Antioch because it is in what is now modern-day Syria. There's uh, some ruins of Antioch that lie near a city of a very similar name, Antakya, Turkey, which got its name from that ancient city. Just to place it geographically for you, this is about a 10-hour drive north of Jerusalem in modern-day terms. I looked it up. You can see how long it would take. It's about 735 kilometers or 578 miles. And John Stott puts it this way about the five who were there. He says, the cosmopolitan population of Antioch was reflected in the membership of the church and indeed in its leadership, which consisted of five resident prophets and teachers. You can think of it this way. In ancient Rome, because of two things, really, because of the highway system or the, the, the system of roads, and because of the protection of the Roman army, it became safe and possible, feasible to travel internationally for, for really the first time in history. And so what happened is Roman encampments were planted at various cities, including at Antioch. And so people, lots of foreigners, would come, come there. In fact, what you're seeing in this description of the group is people that, that these five leaders, they're not from Antioch. They have arrived at Antioch, planted a church at Antioch. So let me just, I'm going to introduce them to you, but part of what you need to understand is that this group here, these five are geographically diverse, they're ethnically diverse, they're sociologically diverse, and they're culturally diverse which also means because they're coming from these various regions of uh, Asia Minor, they're culturally nearer to some of the places where they are about to go. They're described as what you might call word leaders. There's two words there, the prophets and teachers, but let's just take them one by one. Barnabas, what do we know about him? Well, we've already met him before. He's called the son of encouragement. He's one of those people that when you're around him, you feel like you feel encouraged. And uh, he has become, in the narrative of Acts, chapter, of Acts, he's become like a link to the Jerusalem church and a link to the Gentile church. He's become almost like a go-between between them, or even between Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, and then Paul. He's become sort of a link. He's the one that went and got Paul and brought him to Antioch in previous Chapter. So in one sense, Barnabas is sort of the interim pastor of this church. He was until he got Paul. That's a little bit about him. And then we also know that Barnabas is from Cyprus. Now, Cyprus is just on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. It's about 170 miles from where Antioch is. This is important where he's from because the very first place that the missionaries go on their journey is to Cyprus. He goes back to his hometown, and you can see that in 
verse 4. They sailed to Cyprus, 170 miles. I don't think you can fly there directly today. Somebody try it. Uh, Brian McPherson, he's a pilot. Um, I, I I looked up on, on the internet. It's about a five-hour flight on Turkish Airlines. Anyone want to go with me? I'd love to go with you. So that's Barnabas. Next person, and he's one of the ones that is sent out. Next is called Simeon called Niger. And uh, this is what F.F. Uh, F. Bruce says. He says, why he was given a Latin surname is quite clear. The reason for the surname, apart from its Latin origins, can scarcely be in question. He goes on and he says, he was presumably of dark complexion. What Luke is showing here is that the gospel is moving forward and crossing geographical barriers, crossing ethnic barriers. I know it's a little bit anachronistic to speak of this, of crossing racial barriers. But what it's saying here, most likely Simeon is from sub-Saharan Africa. And so Luke is saying, look, this is not your father's church. This is a new multi-ethnic church coming together here in Antioch. There's a man named Simeon of, of Cyrene who carried Jesus' cross. This is not the same person. But you're seeing the diversity here. The next person comes Lucius of Cyrene. Now, why is that important? The geography is particularly important. Raise your hand if you know your ancient history and you know where Cyrene is on a map. Um, it's in North Africa. So this is probably a second African. And if you think of the way that Asia Minor works, listen for a moment. It's at the intersection of three or four continents. Hear me out. It's at the intersection of um, Africa. It's at the intersection of Asia. It's at the intersection of Europe. And then you have the Middle East right there. And so what's happening is it's a place, one of the reasons I believe that God chose and used Jerusalem is because of its international influence onto these various continents. And so what you have is these leaders who have begun to gather together. Saul is from Tarsus, which is a, a bit farther up north and west, and they've all come together in this city. So you have this geographic dispersion, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, a, a, a different colored skin, and he wants you to know that. And then you have Lucius of Cyrene, and then fin finally, um, before we meet Saul, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. It's really interesting because that word there uh, for lifelong friend is translated as foster brother in some texts. Kind of bizarre, I know. But it's a title. Here's the Greek word is suntrophos. It, it refers to people who have been brought up together, a foster brother, a close friend, or a comrade. And F.F. Bruce says it this way. The title was given to boys of the same age as royal princes. And they were to be taken into the court with them together. In other words, this is a young person who becomes sort of like a, a, a friend that is has a, an official purpose. Here the Tetrarch... Had a, had a brother, a foster brother, whose name is Manian. Now, one of the questions you might want to ask here is, which Herod? I told you last week that there are four Herods. And if you remember, the previous section describes the death 
of Herod, when he doesn't give glory to God, it says that he, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and he breathed his last, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Well, it's not that Herod, it's that Herod's father, who was who Manian was a friend with, which means the person that Manian was friends with, a lifelong friend, uh, uh, described even as a foster brother in an official kind of court relationship, he's the one who killed John the Baptist. That's who he is, Herod Antipas. So again, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. Here's what F.F. Um, Bruce says about this. He says, what a commentary this section is on the mystery and sovereignty of divine grace that these two boys who were brought up together, one should attain the honor of a Christian leader and the other should be remembered for his inglorious behavior in the killing of John the Baptist and in the trial of Jesus. What is Luke telling us? He's saying that the birthplace of modern missions came from this highly diverse group of people. Kent Hughes, one of my mentors, puts it this way. This was the church staff at Antioch, a racially integrated group of go-getters. Luke says in verse 21 that they, that they were prophets and teachers. And Antioch was certainly where the action was. Hughes goes on and he says, they were, this group, was in microcosm what the church would become in the world. This was no accident, but the deliberate work of God. And I, I said that this has been a really important passage to me. A few weeks ago, um, someone put in the chat, someone who I love, put in the chat, uh, skin tone is irrelevant. And it was when Pastor... Arthur Jackson was preaching and he was sharing about how he was meeting with a few pastors who were white and a few pastors who were black to read through a book together. And somebody responded from our staff to just say, no, skin color does matter. In other words, God's not colorblind. God sees the beauty and the diversity of a global city. Of, of the globe, of a global city church. In other words, Luke mentions the skin color of Simeon called Niger to say, look at the breadth of the love of God. Lo the love of God cannot be confined to one skin color, but it is available for all skin colors. That The love of God is not available for one ethnicity only, but for all. I believe in a multi-ethnic church, in a multicultural church, in part because of this text. Part of it comes from my own history and background, having two adopted sisters, having lived globally in different places, but part of it comes right from this text. In fact, in about 2003, I just drew a simple circle on a napkin or a piece of paper with five X's on it, brought it to my colleague, Dave Helm, and said, Dave, I want to do this. <laughs> He's like, what is this? And I said, this is the Antioch concept. This is people gathered from all different nations and continents forming a small team 
from which a church planting movement might be born. And friends, this is how I met Pastor Arthur Jackson. By God helping a dream to come true, Pastor Jay did the uh, call to worship today. And uh, in the early 2000s and for a number of years, Arthur Jackson was the pastor, the senior pastor of Judson Baptist Church in Chicago. We met, I believe, in around 2002, preaching workshop, and then began to partner together a little bit between our two churches. And when, when we really began as a church to think about this vision, we called it the Chicago Project. And we felt like we needed to blow up our pastoral team. And so we said in 2005, we said, God, help us to, to be able to hire leaders that represent the diversity and the beauty, not just of the city of Chicago, but of the kingdom of God. And Pastor Jay was consulting with us. Steve, er Steve Ehrenholtz and I went out to uh, lunch with him at um, the Berghof, sat down with Pastor Jay and said, Arthur, tell us as we begin to build a more diverse leadership team, what should we look for? And he wrote out a number of things. And then um, as Steve and I thought about it more and prayed about it, we realized that Arthur Jackson was, was who we felt like we would love to have on our team. So we called him up. And then I remember sitting down at his dining room table and then him seriously thinking about it. And what a gracious and humble move of this man of God. What he said is he wanted to give the last 10 years or so of his life to training up younger leaders. And in God's grace, he's allowed us to train up more than 100 interns. Uh, we're sad to see Ashanti go. But we believe that God has called him to go and do additional work. So Arthur Jackson has become a lifelong friend for me, and I would not want to do ministry without him. But it really came from meditating on this idea of God being glorified and sending out people to the end of the earth. There's a uh, man whose name is Ray Bakke, who was a pastor for many years in the city of Chicago. And this was his conviction that what was happening in Antioch was, is happening in the great cities of the world. And this is what he says. He says, the whole world has come to cities. And this is what's represented in this leadership team. He says, when, when we moved to Chicago in 1965, we discovered that there were 63 nations in our high school, which where our children would eventually attend. And that's when I began to ask, he says, the theological question, what is God doing? And he says, the people around him were getting burned out as pastors and leaders. He said, my ur urban pastor colleagues could find their meaning hardly in the buffeting and discouraging circumstances that were all around them. And he said he wanted them to widen their lens, their visual lens, to see that the whole world in the first century and today is coming to the cities for the first time, he says, in nearly 2,000 years of church history, Christian history, we could speak realistically, listen to this, of the global mission of local churches. Why? He calls it in another place, the revenge of the empire, the empire strikes back where the world has migrated 
to the cities. So cities with their transients. Man, it's draining to say goodbye to people. I think of Michael Goo and uh, D and a guy named Jimmy that were all baptized together at Holy Trinity. D has moved to China. Uh, Michael has moved to Indiana. God has brought people through the doors of Holy Trinity Church and then called him, called them elsewhere. I just want to say, brothers and sisters, don't get tired. <laughs> Widen the lens of what God is doing in our city. Widen the lens of what he's doing through the church. I wish you could go to Chris and Katie Long's uh, kitchen and see on their wall all the little pins that are in a map that show where people from all over the world have come to dine at their table. God is bringing the nations to the cities. Ray Baki goes on, he says, we need a missiological definition of the city. The city is the place where the nations are gathering. So God says the gospel needs to go to the ends of the earth, and it is, but the ends of the earth have come to the great cities of the world. I think of friends that have walked out our doors, been in our homes from Brazil and England and Germany and Switzerland and South Africa and Canada and Australia. I got a text last week from one of our pastoral residents, his pastor, He's planting a church in Pretoria, South Africa right now. That is where he is from. It's challenging to say goodbye. Don't you think it was hard to say goodbye to Saul and Barnabas on that day? The nameless ones are the ones who had stayed. But I am so grateful for the prayers of the people of Holy Trinity over these last 23 years and holding people loosely in their hands. Why this prayer meeting? God used it because of his heart for the nations. He wanted the, the movement to begin in this furnace room of prayer. And why did he use these leaders? Because he wanted a diverse microcosm of the world. From Africa, from Europe, from Asia to be sent out. And then what happened? Well, God moved. It happens after prayer. You know, John Stott uh, was uh, an amazing pastor in London for many years, and I was looking at his biography this week, reading a little bit of it, rereading some of it, and there's a point where it says that John Stott basically invented the category of the international center city contemporary church, that before Stott began his ministry, which really flourished in the in the 60s and, and early 70s, that there weren't examples of Center City International Contemporary Churches that were really preaching the gospel. Um, and God really began to use Stott in his ministry. And the place that God has called us to in the city, in the neighborhoods, but also at the center of the city, allows us, because of the diversity of the city, to be, to be a congregation that has people from various nations. What happens here? While they were worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. It comes in the, ministry, in the, the midst of their ministry, worshiping and fasting, 
Uh, scholars tell us that in ancient times, fasting was a, a practice that related to asking God for sort of revelation of his will. God speaks, and then after fasting and praying, it says they laid their hands on them and sent them off. In other words, God interrupts their worship time, their prayer time, and he steals some away. God initiates this for the sake of the world. He took some of the leaders from the leadership core, and he sent them out. He initiated sending out these leaders. This last week, I went to two ordination services. The first ordination service was, both of them were for people related to Holy Trinity. One was for Robin Cho, who had been for about two years a pastoral resident on the north side. And um, I drove out to the suburbs, and and frankly, let me tell you, when I got to the building where he, <laughs> he was, I was jealous, all right? I admit it. And I'm sitting in this congregation, and, and we're singing with our masks on. And just to my left, in front of me, was Doug O'Donnell, who was really our first intern at Holy Trinity Church. And then over to my right was um, John Nielsen, who's now a pastor. Both of them, Doug went on to become, to plant three churches and then become a professor in Australia, then lead a church called Westminster, and then now he's in, in publishing. And, uh, and then the guy preaching was, was someone that was an intern with me when I was a junior in high school. He's now a president of a college. Well, as we were singing, we came to the line in one of the hymns that says, Ponder anew what the Almighty can do, if with his love he befriend thee and I was just sort of jolted because I remembered a book called The Cambridge Movement that Doug O'Donnell, who was sitting right there, had written on on my birthday on September 7th, 1998. He wrote, to John Dennis, then this line, ponder anew what the Almighty can do. Your servant, Doug O'Donnell. And brothers and sisters, I just want to call you. I know life has been hard but ponder anew what the Almighty might do. What, what might this pandemic produce in terms of opportunities? What might God do as we be, begin to gather together? What kind of team might God begin to raise up again? We are in the midst, our elders are, of asking God to give us some additional leaders to build kind of Antioch team number two. I just ask you to join us in prayer. This book, A Cambridge Movement, is really about the impact that a praying center city church had and how it became an international church. Our church is named after Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, England. And it was named after that church because it was such a faithful church near Cambridge University with a tremendous heart for missions, and also um, a desire to just faithfully preach the word, expositional preaching, and to make disciples of university students. And we feel like God has called us to be right near these, on the edge of universities, universities like the University of Chicago, like 
where we started out, but also like Northwestern University and DePaul University, do you know that there are 500,000 university students in Chicagoland, which is more than residents of Wyoming, that there are 50,000 university students within just a one mile walking distance of the Murphy Auditorium. This book tells the story of how God used that one little church to really birth a movement that became the uh, actually InterVarsity in the United States and became a, a missions movement. So ponder anew what the Almighty might do if with his love he befriend the, befriend the Holy Trinity. What might God do if you become and continue to be a praying person, how might he touch the world through you? Will you pray with us that God would give us a building in the center of the city, that he would allow us to purchase Murphy Auditorium as a once in 100 year opportunity to send out leaders, to raise up leaders. Love you, Holy Trinity. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, help us to ponder anew what you might do. Thank you for this amazing text here, Lord, which speaks of your very, very powerful energy in the world. We love you. We pray that you would bless us in Christ's name. Amen.